Welcome to My African Aesthetic, a podcast that interrogates the African aesthetic in African architecture and design. On this podcast, you'll hear about the work, philosophy, and design process of African architects and designers practicing in Africa and the diaspora. My name is Eunice Nanzala Schumacher. I'm a Ugandan architect and designer living and working in Norway. And my name is Penina Achayo Laker. I am a Ugandan graphic designer researcher, and educator living and practicing in the USA. Our podcast features conversations with designers working to provide architecture and design solutions for Africa. We would like this to become a platform where our guests share their knowledge and experiences on designing in the diverse, hybrid, and dynamic socioeconomic, cultural, and political African context. We are looking forward to embarking on this journey with you. Evelyn Mugisha's architecture and design career journey is bold, daring, versatile, and inspiring. She is an architect and project management practitioner. She's from Uganda, but moved to Australia in 2019 and currently works at Infrastructure Victoria, an independent infrastructure advisory body for the state of Victoria. She's fascinated by cities, the large-scale urban infrastructure that makes up cities, and how this infrastructure works the future of our cities, construction and sustainability, and circularity in infrastructure. She's happy to engage in work and projects aimed towards developing innovative and sustainable solutions to infrastructure delivery and management amidst pressing global challenges like climate change, population growth, resource scarcity, and rapid urbanization. We are intrigued and inspired by Evelyn's personal and career achievements, specifically her process of transitioning to a different career path with architecture and design as her backbone. Her career and personal journey demonstrate one of the many ways how versatile and exciting the architecture profession and career path can be. From her days as an architecture student at Makerere University in Uganda and the Oslo School of Architecture in Norway, Evelyn has always been an achiever receiving awards and scholarships for her achievements. She was a 2017 Mandela Washington Fellow and a 2018 member of the Africa List. We hope that this episode will help young architectural design professionals broaden the spectrum of how they can apply themselves in different career paths. Evelyn, we are so excited to have you here today. Uh, We would like to welcome you officially to the My African Aesthetic Podcast Season 3. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat with you, Penina and Eunice as well. That's great. So just to get started, we'd like to just take you all the way back to <laughs> to your upbringing, your childhood. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your upbringing and if there's anything that you feel like you'd like to share with us that has helped shape uh, your career choices or pathways? Yeah, sure, can definitely do that. So um, I was born in regional Uganda. Uh, My parents, a medical doctor and a stay-at-home mom, raised me and six of my siblings. I have fond memories of my childhood days growing up in a large extended family. My father, who's now a retired 
has actually had the greatest influence on my life. Raising us, he emphasized discipline and hard work. And I would see how much of a, how much a good report from school delighted him. So I always made sure that I brought home the best report that I can at the end of the term. I worked hard in school and chose subjects that challenged me. I was exposed to a life of service early on in my life. Um, my father allowed us to assist him with his medical clinic, and I especially helped out with the pharmacy and other general duties. I was responsible for procuring the drugs and transporting them from the wholesale supplier to the, to the pharmacy and taking note of when stock levels were going down. I also did general administration work around the clinic and, you know, did, you know, other duties like cleaning up and just talking and welcoming patients. So that was early on in my life. So when my dad was building our house, uh, we all pitched in to help and we participated in the construction work. And that involved getting uh, behind uh, a truck to carry bricks and, you know, just help out with the everyday work on construction, which was very good. But even with that experience, I never imagined I would, you know, become an architect later on in life. This decision was made through career counselling and discussions with my parents and teachers. So I went to uh, Mount St. Mary's Namagunga and we always had a career day where different professionals would come and speak to us just before we made choices. And I remember at our careers day, there was a lady architect who spoke and my parents were moved by what she said and the kind of work she did and they thought that I could do the same so they encouraged me along that path I had a few options at that time in terms of what subjects I could do and my parents of course had medicine you know as top priority but when I realized I couldn't study medicine because I was not that good at uh, biology I believe that the next best option would be architecture at that time. So my greatest motivation in life uh, has always been to make a difference in the life of other people. And this is something that I've learned from my father, who has touched many lives throughout his medical career. Wow, first of all. And actually, I just want to like go off for just a little bit and say it's, it's refreshing even to hear from someone who's upbringing and grounding just uh, involved you know your parents being so hands-on and um very supportive of your career pathway it seems like there was a lot of really good nurturing also first of all it's amazing that your parents gave you the opportunity to both study in the classroom but also at home that you are exposed to what learning is, whether it was through service or whether it was working hard at school. So that's amazing. But I, I just would love to, um, I feel like it's important for you to reiterate the value and importance of um, even things like career counseling at a high school level and how valuable it is for students to have that space and time to just be exposed to possibilities, but also to, to wrestle with what, their passions are because in unison I's experience um 
there was tension. It's always this tension. First of all, we feel like you know we, we were made to choose when we were really very young. So at sixteen, I still don't know what I want to study. I'm perhaps going to go by what what I what what subjects I do better in. But what does it really mean for me to choose a career pathway for A levels at sixteen? So it sounds like you had some stewarding and grooming that happened, and I would just love for for you to just reiterate the value or what what that really how valuable that is. Oh, thanks so much, Penina. So uh, it's been both stewarding, but it's also been a journey of self discovery for myself. So early on in in life, um, our father who had you know seven children told us early on that I don't have a big inheritance to leave you with, but what I can do is make sure that I can support all of you to get into the careers that you can that you want to do so that you can support yourselves. So that was uh, already laid out in our foundation and we realized that the best our parents could do for us was give us an education. So we took advantage of that in the sense that we always looked for opportunities for study. Now, uh, it's interesting that you say that I figured it out early in life what I wanted to do. And I don't quite believe it's the case. I believe I'm still on a journey of discovery. But what I've learned in life is that Whatever option you take in life, for example, if you choose to become an architect and later on in life you realize, oh, but I could have been better as an engineer. It's not that it's a dead end. That's what I've learned in life. I've learned that you can uh, keep working on your career, keep exploring your interests and, you know, keep making, you know, certain turns in your career, very exciting turns, just be a bit open-minded and experimental. And I'll say that that has been the case with me. So I did architecture for five and a half years, studied, and then I practiced as an architect for six years and then realized that I had a passion for project management. I had a passion for infrastructure as a whole and not just, you know, constructing buildings. And I've, you know, ventured into that path. And that path has has been, you know, exploration, trying to understand what I'm really good at, what I'm passionate at, and also investing the time to acquire the extra skills. For example, I've been back to school to study a master's of project management. And even last year, I just completed another master's degree in infrastructure, engineering and management. So career, a career journey is a lifetime journey, really. But I'm definitely grateful to my parents who sowed the, you know, the first seeds in that path. Well, Evelyn, it's interesting to see how your educational background has affected how how you have approached the rest of your career. And I agree with you. I mean, our bachelor, our master is is usually the foundation, the seed. And what we do with it after that is is a big question, I think. And and I think you demonstrate very well how versatile architecture is, but also how kind of give us a window into how we can apply ourselves into other disciplines. So do you have any tips on how we can navigate uh, switching gears with design and architecture as a foundation? Any lessons learned from your experience? What I've learned is that architecture is such a good foundation and it exposes you to 
just that foundational thinking and that can take you that can bring so many possibilities in your life because if you can imagine the education of an architect you are taught to think like a lawyer when you're designing a courthouse you know you're taught to think like a medical doctor when you're designing a hospital so as you design these different uh, facilities you're taught to just get into the minds of those different people and I feel I believe that's such a a fundamental, you know, you know, foundation that can, you know, be useful in life later on if you choose to venture into other, you know, other career prospects. And I've seen it also happen with, you know, architects that later on became mayors, architects that later on took on, you know, different positions and how much they've been able to excel based on the foundational knowledge that they learned throughout architecture. So it's actually a very good place to start, you know, one's career. So it's, it sounds, it sounds like, you know, the, the there were so many uh, lessons learned and skill sets besides the hard skills of architecture that actually prepared you to be able to pivot and shift um, even to like adjacent um um, areas that you know maybe are not like traditional practicing of architecture, but whether it's uh, more project management and things like that. Uh, could you could you tell us a little bit about? Um, I, I would I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about your transition specifically career wise. But before we do that, um, you're currently working um, in a foreign geographical architecture. It, it's it's foreign geographically, architecturally, uh, culturally, um, and um, you know, that, that transition is not always the easiest, um, especially when you're young, in your 20s. Could you maybe share with us, what was it like transitioning from Uganda to Norway? I think I was reflecting on something similar last night and I realized that because um, I interact with people that have also left home and try to establish themselves in different parts of the world. And I've seen that there's a a genuine struggle with loneliness and a sense of belonging, with the sense that you're not not here and you're not there. You're sort of in between two places. And it's something that you're going to have to uh, kind of like struggle with and work your way through psychologically. So definitely does have a psychological impact. I can't deny that, but um, I mean, communication as is um, as is the whole transition. When I when I reflect about it now, uh, and thinking about two thousand five when I first left Uganda to go to Norway, there was no uh, okay. Those t- mobile phones had picked up, but definitely and internet was definitely there with email, but definitely none of the social media. Um, uh, sites that we have access to were active at that time. WhatsApp was not there. LinkedIn was just beginning. Facebook was there, but it was not really mainstream, a mainstream way of communicating. So definitely it's much easier to keep um, in touch with what's going on back home in this current situation than it was then, and that helps. But also uh, I believe that you've, you have to sort of harden your mind and sort of um, learn to focus on on the positives and on what you want to achieve out of life. I think that helps in 
terms of grounding you as you make that transition. It's not an easy transition. It requires a lot of self-reflection, a lot of determination and persistence, definitely, but it's not impossible. And also having a long-term goal in terms of what do you want to do in your in your career, what contribution do you want to make where you are geographically, but also back home has been useful. I keep contributing to projects back home as a way to give back and definitely have a long-term plan to return to Uganda. So those are the things that help me to keep, you know, perspective in terms of, you know, my day-to-day um, work and how I re- and how I reflect on, you know, where I am at the moment in life. That was really great. And I love all the great um uh, words of wisdom that you also share for um, hmm. for things that someone can have at the back of their mind when they're in this transitional space because you're kind of, you're away from home, but you start to sort of like let this new place kind of becomes home and then you're kind of like caught in between. You're sort of like, you're, you're neither here or there and that can really <laughs> mess with you uh, psychologically when you have never really lived in a completely separate culture from home. So I think that was extremely important um could you talk could you talk a little bit um about how then you um structured the rest of your learning while you are abroad and leading up to where you are today i first left uganda at the age of 22 i made my maiden journey out of uganda to norway oslo and Oslo became my new home for the next two and a half years i went to study um architecture so what I found different was, you know, urban nature, you know, being in an urban place and, you know, having nature within there. I found that was quite special about Oslo. And also what I found striking was that for the time I was there, the lights were never off. Mm-hmm. The lights were constantly on. And this was a stark contrast to, you know, regional Uganda where I had grown up from, where, you know, we had instances of blackouts and brownouts and, you know, just not having power all the time. So things that we take for granted, you know. So later on, uh, when I I graduated, came back to Uganda, worked as an architect for some time, and then there's an opportunity that came up with uh, Uganda's largest electricity distribution company, that's Umeme Limited, and I I decided to get onto that, you know, to, to get that opportunity because it was a capital expansion program where the company was going to invest over five years, $100 million every year into the electricity distribution network. And I felt that was a good opportunity to to power Uganda, definitely. So my most fulfilling moments at Umeme was when we delivered power to previously unelectrified locations. It was so gratifying to see. And... During that time, probably the best lesson for me was the role of partnerships in helping to meet uh, some of the sustainable development goals like universal electrification. So we rolled out massive capital investments, but the investments paled in relation to the need. So it takes a lot of investment to even move the needle by 1%. So to get 
an additional 1% of Ugandans electrified takes so much investment. And I realized that investing only in the grid was not the answer. So you need several partners uh, ranging from, you know, solar home systems to mini grids. You need the donors to come on board. So for me, that was a lesson in, you know, uh, in meeting the sustainable development goals along the way. And so in terms of my career, the shift from architecture to broaden out to large scale infrastructure was really birthed through my community engagement activities. So since returning to Uganda uh, from Norway on weekends, I developed an interest of exploring Kampala city by foot. So these weekend walks led me to many places, uh, mostly within the informal settlements. And here I got to talk to people and experience their daily routines and, you know, inconveniences like, you know, not having um, proper wastewater, waste waste systems, you know, waste collection systems and how that impacts, you Mm. know, people's everyday lives. So as a way to support these communities, I started uh, initially with some fundraising activities together with, you go, we got together with colleagues and we designed a classroom block for an orphanage in Chebando, a place called Chebando, just near Mulago. And it was quite a learning lesson for us as we undertook participatory design with the communities. We literally spent afternoons with the communities, you know, with chalk and, you know, pieces of paper, markers, you know, trying to understand what is a good community space in their, you know, in their opinion. And so we had, you know, the children draw, we had members of the community come and join in these activities. And then we went on to run also some waste to energy pilot projects, teaching women groups on how to manufacture briquettes. Now, briquettes is a type of bio biofuel that is formed uh, in our case we're using dried banana peelings and charcoal dust as that was the most um, available waste form of waste in that in that location and it is an alternative to using charcoal and wood for cooking and this was a way to tackle waste management as source and reduce reliance on unsustainable biomass and also eventually the big the big scheme of things to mitigate deforestation. So these encounters made me come to the personal realization that people need more than just shelter because I realized that people are ingenious enough to put together, you know, some, you know, iron sheets and bricks and you know provide the basic shelter they need or makeshift shelter in a in a slum but to get the services like clean water like electricity like waste you know management uh, a harder harder services to deliver because they need a more communal uh, you need to look at it more at a planning level you need to elevate it at a community level not at the individual household level for these services to really work properly so we need the infrastructure around these you know buildings this you know to give these people a decent a decent quality of life they need access to clean water affordable energy 
you know, waste management, they need access to proper transportation, to healthcare, to schools. And we need to incorporate how we can, we need to explore ways of how we can incorporate these at large scale. So in 2012, I completed my master's degree in project management, and this gave me the leverage to expand my career options. Uh, So I've since worked across numerous sectors, including electricity, distribution, uh, water, and transportation. And now in my current role at I work across all infrastructure sectors. Uh, I work in in a more strategic role uh, with infrastructure. Victoria, we we develop uh, the state of Victoria's uh, infrastructure strategy over 30 years. So it's a long-term plan. And I believe that the next generation of infrastructure is going to be highly complex intertwined as already seeing the nexus between energy and transportation now with electric vehicles and then also water and energy you can't really separate the sectors anymore and so we believe i believe that you know with the advancement of ict communications technology we're going to find that a lot of these uh, infrastructure sectors that were previously separate are going to just be intertwined and you, you know and codependent on each other really What are your general thoughts on African cities and infrastructure as an African design professional looking in with a diasporic lens? And well, at the moment, where are the strengths, opportunities or challenges and where do we start, generally speaking? I think that Africa is the next frontier in terms of development, global development. Africa is a space to watch you know, that's what, that's my feeling. What I've seen with uh, a lot of these developing countries is that the, the infrastructure is really aging. So they're at the point where they are looking at renewing infrastructure that has been in operation since the mid of the last, you know, the 1950s, you know, 1930s. Yet on the other hand, Africa has not yet built enough of the infrastructure we need to to get to the same level of development. Then that said, I also think that Africa does not have to pollute its path to success. We do not need to follow the economic paradigms that have been based on overconsumption of resources like we see in the West, you know. I think we can center our climate priorities as, you know, climate change is a major issue at the moment. We can utilize our capabilities and we can focus our long-term economic growth that ensures that Africans live dignified lives, not, you know, not we don't have to live in polluted cities. I believe Africa is the last frontier in the sense that we're the ones who must demonstrate to the rest of the world that it's possible to develop and flourish in a green, sustainable and inclusive manner. I know that there's a lot that has been done in our African cities that does not really live up to this vision, but I also believe that it's not too late because I believe that the bulk of infrastructure that we need in Africa has actually not yet been built. 
So one option for Africa to do this is to shift infrastructure development and delivery towards producing transform transformative effects for our people and the planet. And circular infrastructure is, you know, one of the ways that we can address this. So circular infrastructure is the intersection of infrastructure and the circular economy. So circular infrastructure investments include those in, you know, all sectors like transport, energy, social, communication, water and waste sectors and with circular infrastructure we try as much as possible to design out waste and pollution from cities we try to keep products and materials in use and maintain their value so we're trying to reuse as much as possible instead of disposing of and then we also regenerate natural systems around and inside cities so trying to look at eco what people would call eco design or nature-based solutions. So trying to leverage those kind of solutions instead of building hard concrete infrastructure everywhere. So I'll illustrate circular infrastructure with two sectors. One, the built environment, and the next, uh, transport or mobility. So in the built environment, what's required to make, uh, you know, infrastructure more circular we need to integrate and apply circular economy urban planning um, principles at the local neighborhood level or locations and this could be in the form of water sensitive urban design we can ensure that construction materials are designed to be reused and recycled and limit the usage of virgin materials for example um, one 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 um, waste stream that is uh, glass at the moment. It's a major waste stream glo globally and I've realised that you know, working in infrastructure here in Melbourne, we're using a lot of recycled glass fines to replace, you know, something like virgin sand, which has been quite good for the big, you know, infrastructure projects that we're doing. Uh, you can ensure that the building infrastructure facilities that uh, we use renewable energy such as solar, wind, and also integrated landscaping strategies to support, um, you know, biocycles and ecology. Then we can also integrate energy, water, and waste management systems to increase capacity and flexibility in the entire functioning. So we just start looking at these sectors, not as individual sectors, but seeing ways we can integrate, for example, use of bio, you know, biogas from waste. You know, we're trying to see how we can increase synergies within these different sectors. So our building design can be helpful as a tool in addressing several of the requirements listed above. Uh, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, and I would encourage our listeners to look it up. It's one of the leading foundations in terms of circular economy and promoting it. So they've, uh, they've devised an intri intriguing comparison to describe building design for circular economies. And they give a proposition that if buildings were designed like Lego, their various components or materials might be easily assembled, disassembled, recovered, reused, and instead of being disposed of to landfills. So think about the brick and, you know, and how we build you brick and mortar. But, you know, we can also develop, you know, the 
we already have uh, technologies around the interlocking blocks, which are easier to put apart. So if we can promote more of those technologies instead of, you know, building with brick and mortar, which is hard to recover anyway at the end of life. So using low inventive materials to create flexibility and dynamic buildings will pave the road for circular economy and of course using renewable non-toxic materials will promote reusability and eventually allow materials to be safely returned to the biosphere so here in the sense of african context and african aesthetic there's something really marvelous around you know using a brick that I think we need to explore more, you know, using our virgin materials instead of, you know, having all these aluminium clad buildings that are just, you know, taking so much out of the out of uh, nature and are hard to not to take back into the system at the end of life. So I'll quickly go to mobility now. So the public and private transportation systems of a city are referred you know, collectively to uh, as urban mobility. So it's widely acknowledged that the whole mobility sector is on the verge of one of the most rapid and major disruption in the transportation history. Here we look at things like electric vehicles, shared car schemes, you know, autonomous or driverless vehicles that are, you know, already being piloted in some cities. And then we also have better connected services that are coming up as a result of all these applications that are being developed, even just basic applications like Google Maps that just kind of like create a revolution around mobility. So these modifications can reduce congestion. They can improve, help us to improve air quality and also reduce the energy and material demand as a result and, and result into significant economic savings if we can actually leverage them. However, if cities do not respond swiftly enough to the emergency of these technologies, they may become more congested, you know, dirtier, plagued with illicit tax services, you know, the kind of services where workers are actually overexploited. And so understanding how these new technologies fit in and interact with major parts of the city compose the city's overall system in terms of, you know, implementation. Transportation cannot function without suitable systems like roads, like providing parking, you know, gas stations, and of course, basic things like, you know, traffic rules and signage and so on. So any discussion of mobility could also examine the current system conditions, as well as future possibilities and what changes we could make. If a city wants more of its inhabitants to cycle or walk, then we need a, the system to condition for this in terms of we need to create the cycling lanes, we need to create walkways that people can be, can feel comfortable using. We need to restrict motor vehicles in parts of the city where we feel like people can use public transport. So we need to put these systems in place to encourage the right behavior that we're expecting out of our citizens. So I'll conclude with an interesting case study of the city of Curitiba in Brazil, which improved both its mass transit, but also 
it's you know waste problem using you know the same kind of solutions. So as the city Curitiba grew and refuse piled up in their narrow alleyways uh, where trucks could not retrieve it. The city developed a program instructing children on how to separate out waste. So this started in schools. Then the children in turn told their families. So we should never underestimate the import, you know, the interventions like just teaching children and you know the kind of behaviors that we want to 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 be developed. So in, re- uh, so in return for sorting out the rubbish, people were paid uh, fresh food and bus tokens. And that also improved the use of the mass transit system. So you see how a system kind of thinking, you know, going on here. So the result is that today 85% of Curitiba citizens use the bus and 90% participate in recycling. Uh, The city recycles 70% of its refuse and it has one of the highest uh, recycling rates in the world. So the story of Curitiba's urban transformation is actually attributed to Jamie Lana. He passed on last year, but he's one of my uh, for me the greatest architects um, that I, you know, who's who I think has made a transformation. He was trained as an architect, but has served more, served more as a mayor, served more in terms of, you know, policy and leadership. But he implemented many fantastic urban reform projects, including the bus rapid trans- transit. And so his city is actually a case study for many cities in South America. So you can read more about his work or listen to his TED Talk, A Song, in the, a Song of the City. It's an interesting TED Talk to listen to. And I think yeah, that's really what I wanted to share about, you know, my perspective on African cities and how we can position our growth globally. Well, Evelyn, it is very, very, very interesting. And uh, there's a lot to learn. Uh, listening to you speak passionately about infrastructure and cities and and planning for the future. Uh, but I wonder, how do you keep the interest? How do you keep yourself updated? And how do you how do you build the confidence in a field that is not predominantly what you have your education in? Fantastic question. Uh, one thing is that I've committed to being a lifelong learner and. I follow, you know, massive online courses, what they call MOOCs online, and they are absolutely free. So check out platforms like Coursera, EDX, you name it. A lot of useful, everything I'm speaking to to you today are things that I've learned on massive online courses. And they they have people from different parts of the world, you know? So you're learning alongside other learners, but also you find that these top universities globally, like for example, TU Delft, you find Harvard, you find MIT, give this information away for free. It's just um, a matter of you getting access to an internet connection for you to be able to access this information and to be hungry and desirous to learn. So at any one point in life, I'm always, you know, plugged into a MOOC on any topic that I want to learn. So this, uh, we, we live in an age where we actually have more information than we need. We're not, we're not short of information. It's now our initiative. And I remember being back home in Uganda, definitely access to 
internet was not, you know, uh, it was expensive to access some of these platforms online. But every time I got home, there was, uh, I had a friend who had an office close to home. I would take time off between 5.30 and 6.30 and just go to his office and just ask, can I use your internet? To, 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 to do my learning, or if I had a lunch break at work, I would plug in. So make use of the university internet, you know? If the university offers you internet, make use of that, you know, to, to learn. There's a lot of information I can definitely share much more, but definitely starting with the MOOCs. And once you learn the MOOCs, you go on and read about these people, read, you know, read more about the topics that you find interesting. Definitely with the internet, there's no shortage of information. It's just, you know, time maybe. Thank you. Thank you very much for the examples and the tips and for sharing your knowledge with us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, no, that I was just soaking it all in, um, Evelyn. I can't believe we are coming to the end of this time with you. I wish we had more time, but we definitely look forward to more opportunities to dive deeper into many, many of the interesting themes and topics that you've touched on. Um, we usually like to conclude this podcast by posing a very open-ended general question to our viewers, somewhat selfishly because it's this is a My African Aesthetic podcast and I think the notion of African aesthetic is something Guinness and I, being on this journey with this podcast, um, it's, I think if you can kind of think of it as our own way of uh, discovering or like self-discovery. We are curious to see how, um, what the African aesthetic means for different um, Africans in the diaspora or practicing on the continent, how uh, they interpret what that is, what that means in their own particular fields or in this particular moment in your career. Uh, so for you, Evelyn, if you're thinking about the African aesthetic, uh, within the context of the work that you do, which you you wear so many hats, I don't even know which one you'd pick. Um, but yeah, what does the African aesthetic mean to you? Uh, thanks. For me, the African aesthetic is place-specific and it's authentically African. So we have great examples of beautiful African architecture and cities. And I will not go into the details of those, but I believe, you know, everybody knows the Egyptian pyramids. They are so, they are so place specific that year. Yeah. So we don't need to see Dubai or Doha in Africa. You know, we can increase our density definitely without creating slums. That's, we also don't need to associate African cities with slums. Slums come as a result of settlements without any supporting infrastructure. We need to be more deliberate about how we are planning our cities. Sadly, for most African cities, the planning has been left to the private sector. So it's private sector led. That's why you start to see, you know, buildings coming up in places where you wouldn't imagine uh, a planner you know, permitting that building to come in, to you know, to be built where it is, really. Yeah? So that is the reality, but all is not lost. Like I said before, the majority of the infrastructure and buildings we need for Africans, you know, for the population has not been constructed. So we can rethink it. And then for students out there, I want my last, you know, my, my parting shots would be, there is always room for excellence for those who be, you know, 
prepared to, to go the extra mile. So for young designers, for architects, engineers, planners, you can differentiate yourself by doing things differently. Now, how do you do things differently? It's going the extra mile, you know, while other students are waiting for the teacher to teach, you know, for the lecturer to come and tell them this is what you need to study. You go and do that MOOC and learn with students from Harvard. And believe you me, you'll be doing something different and it will manifest in your work. And then you'll be the shining example. We need more shining examples. And there's a lot of information out there. So differentiate yourself. There's always room for excellence. And those are my parting shots. Thank you. Thank you both. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please join us for more conversations and interviews with African educators, creatives, architects, urban planners, and designers as they share their knowledge and experiences about practicing in Africa and the diaspora. Remember to subscribe, leave a review, or share this podcast with other people that might be interested in this content. Thank you for joining us today.